And I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 8. And I want to see in Acts 8 where it is that we can find joy uh, in spite of whatever we go through in life. We can rejoice uh, because of what we see declared to an Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, chapter 8. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you're new to the Bible, just look up the table of contents and you can find a page number for the book of Acts in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Uh, Or you could find it on a phone or a tablet. Acts chapter 8, we're going to start this morning with verse 25 and read through the end of the chapter. Acts 28, verse, or 26 rather, verse 26 through verse 40. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. It says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go forward, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was re- reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading uh, uh, Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shear, its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And uh, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I want to preach to you this morning on the topic, the good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we dive into his word this morning. Father, this is Your Word that has been given to us without error. It is powerful enough to to speak to us even today. I pray that You would use this Word to divide us. That You might show us who we are in our sin, but also in Christ. No longer in our sin. That we might know that the message, message of Jesus is in fact good news that we might hear this good news about Jesus this morning. Father, I pray that I would communicate not just simply my own ideas, but Your Word. Open our hearts. May we be like this Ethiopian eunuch who had an open heart ready to receive Your Word, Your truth, Your Gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Recently, a wealthy Las Vegas businessman named Robert Bigelow has offered $1 million to anyone who can provide evidence of an afterlife. So, 
shoot him an email. <laughs> but he wants evidence. He wants bodies studied. He wants people passing from life to death studied. He wants somebody to give him evidence. He explains that after his wife died, he was motivated in his older years to find out if life exists after death. And so he began the Bigelow Institute. I read from the announcement. It says, The Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies was formed to try to conduct research and facilitate research into the possibility of the survival of human consciousness beyond bodily death. So Bigelow said this in, a, in an exclusive interview. He said, if that is true, then to explore what is the other side all about. Well, I want to proclaim to you the fact that God has revealed to us this mystery that Robert Bigelow is willing to pay a million dollars to find out something about. God has, well, first of all, we should say God is the only one that could tell us anything about life after death. And I think Bigelow probably knows that, that this is an impossible study. But God has revealed to us that there is consciousness after this life. That the human conscious, uh, conscience still, still goes on. And there is a judgment. We are all faced then with this problem of death. We are all faced then with this problem of one day standing before God. However, I want to proclaim to you not just the problem, but the good news about Jesus. It's good news because Jesus has shown us that not only is there life after death, but there is hope for you as well. There's hope for all of us, no matter who we are. As I think of Robert Bigelow, it kind of makes me realize that no matter how rich we are, the problem of death still looms over us. No matter how successful we are, in this world, we can't escape that reality. That's why we need the good news about Jesus. Now, good news is uh, a word that is also translated gospel. So, I'm also talking about what you might call the gospel about Jesus this morning. Any news that doesn't really give us a remedy for death or beyond death, is insufficient news as it relates to death. You know, many people turn to what I'm going to just simply call dead religion to try to figure out how to live in this life and maybe have some kind of hope for life in the future. But any religion that doesn't offer a real confidence that you are accepted by God not just a vague idea, but a real confidence is not enough. Wisdom of the world is not enough. Organizing our lives by what we can naturally know. Shaping our views of morality and identity and significance based on what we can naturally know is insufficient as it relates to facing our death. Political power as helpful as that might be on earth. We'll never create a utopian society that will protect us from all harm and keep us from having to face this question of death. Gaining material wealth in this world, hoping in what we have, will be things that are just simply left behind in the grave. Street smarts. Believing that we can rise to prominence and find community and quick cash in the streets will ultimately just hasten our trip to the grave. What do all of these dead religions have in common? None of them offer forgiveness. None of them offer hope 
beyond death. In our text this morning, we meet a man simply referred to as the Ethiopian eunuch. And he is a religious man. But he's confused. Philip finds him on a road, sitting on his chariot, studying the book of Isaiah, and he is in his own crisis. The dead religion that he has committed himself to has not delivered. And he's facing the crisis. Here's his crisis. He's reading Isaiah, and he's wondering, who is this man who dies in Isaiah? Now, I wonder if anybody here came with a crisis. I, I actually don't know if anybody could ever really come to Jesus without first hitting a crisis. I think it's the crisis that leads us to ask deeper questions, that opens our hearts, that draws us to a, a place of humility where we might receive something new. And I wonder if anybody is here with a crisis the dead religion that you've committed yourself to, the wisdom of the world, the political power, the street smarts, material wealth, whatever it is that you have committed yourself to has not delivered. And you are left with deep questions. Does God really accept me? Can I ever find forgiveness? What is beyond death? And is there any way in which death could be conquered? And so this morning, what I hope to do is, is to display for you the remedy. Radical grace and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. And it's called in the Bible, the gospel or good news or the good news about Jesus. I want to divide our text up into three different headings. Number one, gospel duty, verses 26 through 31. Number two, gospel proclamation, verses 32 through 35. And number three, gospel inclusion, verses 36 through 40. So let's break it down. Let's look at the text this morning. Number one, gospel duty, the duty of the good news. In Acts chapter 8, we see here the main character. His name is Philip. We just saw Philip go to Samaria. If you were here uh, with us last week, uh, Philip was in Samaria. And he met a man in Samaria named Simon. In some ways, Simon is contrasted with the Ethiopian eunuch that we're going to see today. One received uh, uh, the teaching for, for uh, selfish purposes, and another gives up self and receives the teaching uh, for God-glorifying purposes. So Philip is a former deacon now known as Philip the evangelist, because he has this gospel duty of taking the good news about Jesus to the people who don't yet know about Jesus. We're told uh, that an angel of the Lord directed Philip to go on a road toward Gaza, which is a desert place. Now, the road is important because there is a man referred to as the Ethiopian eunuch on that road. And it is God's desire to save the Ethiopian eunuch that day. If Philip were on any other road, he would never have come across the Ethiopian eunuch, and the eunuch would have gone home with sorrow. But God wants to save somebody. And so Philip is directed by the Spirit do you realize that I think a lot of times we don't think about the Spirit's direction in our lives? And we think that if this Holy Spirit were to leave, we could still power through and do church. We are helpless without the Spirit of God. And I love the fact that Philip is driven by the Spirit and obedient to God as he moves down this road. It says in verse 27 that he rose and went. And he meets this eunuch. Let me tell you a little bit about the eunuch. Let me give you a little bit of his bio here. The, the Ethiopian eunuch is from the kingdom of Ethiopia, also known as the kingdom of Nubia. He was a powerful individual. He worked directly with the queen of Ethiopia. 
He was likely wealthy because he was the treasurer for the queen. So he had access to wealth and probably a whole lot of riches that he could use. We see that he's not on foot, but rather he's riding a chariot, which would be a little more of the upper echelon of society, if you would. He also is reading, which means in this first century that he was educated. He had the ability to read. Not only all of that, but he is a religious man. It says that he came to Jerusalem to worship. Now, does anybody know how long it would take on a little chariot to get from Ethiopia to Jerusalem? One thing I discovered in my studies this week is that that trip would take about six months. Six months. Each way. For this pilgrimage, we are talking about a year travel to get to Jerusalem to worship. This man is a dedicated religious man. Now why, let's just ask this question, why would an Ethiopian be so dedicated to Judaism? Well, by this time, Judaism had somewhat of a global impact in the known world. And, and even in Ethiopia, there were people who had become adherents of Judaism, likely Gentiles who were brought into the Jewish faith through their adherence. In Psalm 67, 32, it even references the Ethiopian community. In the Messianic age, it says, Ethiopia will stretch out her hand to God. So clearly this eunuch saw himself as one of these people who is hoping for the Messianic age and stretching out his hand to God, a dedicated religious man. Like some of you, it took 10 minutes to walk to church and you thought you were suffering for Jesus. <laughs> this, bro, this, this, this guy, six months each way. That is dedication. That is dedication. However, listen to this. In spite of all of that, he's disappointed. In spite of all of his, uh, his wealth, in spite of all of his power, in spite of all of his significance, in spite of all of his education, in spite of all of his religiosity, the, the eunuch is left with a crisis. We see him now. He's been at Jerusalem. All right? he, he has been uh, uh, to the Mecca. He has been to the epicenter. Yeah, he's confused. He's heading home, and in his despair, he can't even continue traveling, and he opens up his scroll, and he's reading Isaiah, and he is confused. I believe this man is in a crisis. Martin Luther, in the year 1511, Martin Luther was a, a, a Roman Catholic monk who did not know the hope of salvation. And he had hoped to find uh, salvation in Rome. And so in the year 1511, Martin Luther made his pilgrimage to Rome. And it was the most disappointing time in his entire life. When he arrived at Rome, he had hoped that he would find salvation there. But when he arrived at home, he found corruption, prostitution in the streets, sin. When he arrived at Rome, he, he uh, like all of the other pilgrims, uh, went up the stairs called the, the Scanta, uh, uh, Scala Scanta, which are the stairs that Jesus supposedly stood on while, while he was tried by Pilate. On his knees, like all the other pilgrims, he went one step at a time all the way to the top. And when he got to the top, accidentally, he said out loud, in a moment of doubt and despair, he said, who knows if this is all true? And he went home with a crisis. You see, sometimes it's not until we get to the top of the steps that we realize salvation is not on the steps. Sometimes it's not until we get to the top of our dead religion that we realize salvation is not in 
are dead religion. Sometimes it's not until uh, we get to the top in Hollywood that we realize there is no salvation in Hollywood. It's not until the hustler gets to the top of his life on the streets that he realizes there is no salvation in the streets. It's not until the materialist finally gets the house of his dreams that he realizes a house does not save. It's not until Martin Luther got to Rome that he realized Rome could not save. It's not until you finally arrived at whatever you thought arrival was that you realized arrival doesn't save. It's not until the eunuch got to Jerusalem that he realized that, that, that the, the, the hope of the law actually provided no hope, that there was no salvation to be had. And he's left with this crisis that leads me to this gospel duty you see, Philip is going to a man in crisis to guide the lost so that the lost might know Jesus. Listen, if, if you are a believer, two things that we can learn from Philip's life right, right here in this story. Number one, Philip is obedient to God. Unlike Jonah, Philip doesn't run from the call, but rather it says in verse 30 that Philip ran to the eunuch. And number two, Philip initiated. He saw the eunuch. He heard the eunuch, which by the way, in those days, it was custom to read everything out loud, unlike we do today silently. Uh, he, he heard the eunuch reading Isaiah. The, the thought popped in his head, and Philip initiated. You know, initiating the conversation is sometimes the most difficult thing to do. But see, the evangelist is almost like a spiritual spy, always looking for the opportunities. You know, getting together with somebody in the cafe and listening to the conversation, but more than just listening, looking for, that, looking for the opportunity. Where is the crisis? Where can I speak? Where can I move? How can I bring Jesus to light in this individual's life? Looking for the opportunity. Uh, about a year ago, I was praying for God to give me more gospel opportunities. Opportunities to share my faith with Jesus Christ. And the crazy thing that happened was that God just simply began opening my eyes to the opportunities I already had that I was missing. I wonder if there are gospel opportunities, if there are Ethiopian eunuchs that you walk by on a daily basis and you just fail to take the initiative, to ask the question, to take the opportunity. God, open our eyes to the opportunities that you have given us. So here's the initiation, or the initiative rather. In verse 30, uh, Philip asks the question, do you understand what you are reading? That's a good question to ask. Verse 31, the answer comes from the eunuch. He says, how can I unless someone guides me? You know, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says that Jesus was moved with compassion as he saw the crowds because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Don't you know that in Jesus' compassion, he sends a guide? Maybe in Jesus' compassion for you this morning, he has sent a guide. Oh, may we be humble enough to receive the guide that Christ sent us. The guide might not always look like the sage you thought. Could look like a 40-year-old white dude, right? Could look like a son or a daughter. It could look like a brother or a sister or a parent. It could look like a neighbor. It could look like a child. But in God's compassion, he sends a guide to the lost. Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd and it broke his heart. And God has brought us his word. How shall they hear without a preacher, we're told. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, I don't want to just highlight Philip. I also want to highlight the Ethiopian eunuch because the eunuch has an incredible openness and willingness to learn. And again, I think it's because he's hit his crisis. 
Because it's not until we hit that crisis that we're finally humble enough to hear what somebody else has to say. He has an incredibly uh, uh, open heart. And while Philip initiates, the eunuch, it says, invites Philip into his chariot. Come on and join me. It was probably one of the old three-person chariots, probably a little platform, maybe some walls, if he had a lot of uh, wealth to work with, maybe a, a roof with a curtain. Uh, but they usually would have about three people in the chariot, the driver, uh, the rider, and one guest. And Philip became, for a short time, the guest on the eunuch's chariot because the eunuch was humble, was open and was ready to receive what Philip had to offer. Has God opened your heart this morning? Have you come here with a readiness to hear the Word of God? Have your good deeds failed you and you're at that crisis place? Have you been humbled by the disappointments in your life? What we have to offer is life. Life itself. As we go on in the text, what we see is the life that is offered. My second heading here for you is gospel declaration. Gospel duty, and now gospel declaration. In verses 32 through 35. As, as he asks the eunuch, what is it that you're reading? Uh, uh, tell me about the passage. We're told what the eunuch was reading right there in verse 32 and 33. It says, like a, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. That is found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 and 8. And we can assume that the eunuch has been studying the book of Isaiah looking for maybe who is this messianic figure and in particular who is this man who dies in Isaiah is it is it, is it him as it Isaiah is it somebody else who is this man we're told that Philip then in verse 35 begins with this passage and it simply says he, he, he told him the good news about Jesus he starts with Isaiah 53, and he probably went all the way back to Genesis and went all through the Scriptures and told him the good news about Jesus. Good news, like I said, is another way we could translate that word is gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus? What is the good news of Jesus? You know, if you ask 10 people that question, you're probably going to get 10 different responses. Some people might say, well, the good news is a life of rules that I am to live by, or the good news is a lifestyle, or the good news is the Bible, or the good news is Jesus, or the good news is God, or the good news is that I'm a good person. What is the good news of Jesus? You know, in the New Testament, when we see good news or gospel, it's always referring to a specific message. Like all the gospel writers kind of agreed, there is one message that we're talking about when we talk about the good news. Now I also got to say this, news is a declaration of something that has happened, something that is done. It is different than law. It's different than lifestyle. It's different than even affirmation. It's news of something that has happened. Kind of like back in the day when grandma would say, dinner is ready. That was good news, right? You, you no longer have to keep uh, snacking the crackers of this world, right? Because dinner is ready. It was an invitation to come to the table and eat. You have to do nothing. You receive it by grace. That's what good news is. I know some people are hungry in this room. Good news. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Let's turn to Isaiah. If you're new to the Bible, don't worry about it. Just listen to me as I, as I preach here. But if you're quick on the draw, turn to Isaiah chapter 53. And let's look at this passage that the eunuch would have been exploring. In Isaiah chapter 53... 
in verse 5 and 6, this man who dies in Isaiah, it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All of those, like sheep, had gone astray. Those, those who had turned away, every one of them, to his own way. The Lord laid on this one, this one who dies. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of those who have turned away. This is interesting. This, first of all, tells the eunuch and tells all of us that we are not naturally innocent, but we are naturally guilty. You see, God created humans to live. And there was a standard. If we're naturally guilty, that means there must have been a standard that we failed to live up to. God created human beings with a standard, and that standard was not myself. The standard was not Mike Roach, all right? The standard uh, uh, was not Sinethia Drake. The standard was Christ, or was God himself. Holiness. Perfection. We've turned away. Iniquity is a strong word for sin. Rebellion against God. Now, uh, even though humans sinned, God said, I'm going to send a Redeemer. He called a man named Abraham, and he promised to Abraham, through your seed, through your offspring, uh, there's one that's going to come that is going to be the Redeemer of the world. It's going to bless everybody. And as the pages of Scripture develop, we learn it's clearly not the family of Israel itself. Because Israel fails over and over and over again. They never achieve the rest that God promised them. They never obeyed the law, the standard that God put in place. So then who is this one that is to come? The mystery becomes clear as we turn into the New Testament, into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what we see is that the one that is promised to come is Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is God Himself. What a twist in the story. That God Himself is the one who He promised would come. How do we know Jesus is God? Well, just as a quick example, John 8, 58. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. The, the personal name for God. Before Abraham ever existed, uh, yeah, I was Yahweh. They picked up stones to stone him after that because everybody knew what Jesus was claiming. And C.S. Lewis says he's, he's either lunatic or Lord. Well, I believe he's Lord. I believe that Jesus was God. But not only that, here's the other twist. Is that as we see here, there's going to be a substitution. So in verse 3, it says that this one that's to come is despised and rejected by man. Well, the Bible tells us he came into this world and this world did not receive him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. If you can imagine, your sister needs a kidney. And you're praying for a kidney. And finally, the kidney comes and she goes into surgery. And the doctors tell you that unfortunately her body is so sick it rejected the kidney. The world is so sick that when the remedy came into the world, the world rejected the remedy and put him on the cross. And that leads us to these verses that the eunuch uh, pub, uh, read out loud that he was struggling with. It says in verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent. He didn't even open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off. He was stricken. Jesus' trial and death was the most unjust trial 
and death this world has ever known. But yet another irony, church. Even with all of that, God was not out of control. It was God's plan. Why? Well, going back to verse 4 and 5 and 6, it's because we needed a substitution. One of the things that God revealed to us through His Word is that though sin comes with a punishment, the punishment of death, physical death in this world, and then eternal death under the wrath of God forever and ever. Though sin comes with this curse, God would accept a substitution. So the Hebrews says that for years and years and years, Israel would offer bulls and goats as substitutes, lambs as a substitute for their sin. But the blood of bulls and goats could never really forgive sins. It wasn't until God came in the flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, and then died in our place. That's when He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep. We had gone astray. We turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. My sin was placed onto His shoulders. God treated Him like a sinner so that I might be received as a son. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's who Isaiah is referring to. I don't know the exact words that Philip would have used with the eunuch, but it was something like what I just told you. Oh, but it gets even better. The, the, the offering that we have in the good news about Jesus is more than just the forgiveness of sins. But it's the promise of new life. You see, three days later, early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up from the dead. The grave couldn't hold him. The earth couldn't keep him. And he actually rose again. I recently read a story of uh, eight-year-old Philip. A different Philip than the one in the Bible here. Eight-year-old Philip was born with Down syndrome. And he was in a Sunday school class with other eight-year-olds. And though he had Down syndrome, they learned from him. They loved Philip. They would interact with him, play with him. And uh, one day on Easter Sunday morning, the Sunday school teacher gave the kids uh, eggs, Easter eggs. And she instructed the kids to take the eggs and, and to go around the church grounds and to find something that represented new life and to put it into the egg. And then they brought their eggs back and the teacher opened the eggs one at a time and there was a leaf and a flower and a dead butterfly. That don't re represent life, but I get the idea, all right. And then she opens up an empty egg. And all the eight-year-olds are like, oh, somebody didn't do the assignment. That's stupid. Somebody forgot to put something in there. And eight-year-old Philip speaks up and he says, oh, no, that's my egg. It's empty because the grave was empty. <laughs> Philip knew something about new life. You know, a few weeks after that, Philip passed away. And the kids brought empty eggs and placed it on Philip's casket. Because Philip knew something about the hope of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. You know, I've got to ask, why was it that as the good news of Jesus was explained to the eunuch, why was it that the eunuch received this? Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ confirms that this message is true to the unbeliever. The, 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 the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our proof that everything that Jesus said is right and true. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he would just be a lunatic. Another man hung, hanging on the cross and put in the grave, and his bones are still there. But no, Jesus rose from the dead, which proves that he is Lord. 
And what it also proves is this, is that your sins are forgiven. For all who are in Christ, we have the promise that our sins are forgiven and that we will one day be raised to new life and live forever with God in a new recreated world without even the presence of sin. How do we become part of this? The Bible says to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. It's, it's not a list of to-dos. It is a reception of the news. It is Grandma's invitation to the table, right? Come to the table and eat without price. It is free. And the food will nourish you and will give you life, will give you forgiveness, will give you salvation. All who want to come to this table, come to this table and receive Christ as your Savior. Amen? Lastly, and I'll close with this, I want to to hit on gospel inclusion. What it means to be included in this family. Immediately, the eunuch wants to be baptized. Now, Philip must have explained to him baptism as well. And he wants to be baptized. If you look at verse 36, it says, As they're going down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me? It's interesting that he asks that question. Well, I think there's probably two objections that the eunuch had on his own mind. Number one would be his own ethnicity. Do I have to be born fully Jewish? You see... As the eunuch went to Jerusalem in the first century, one of the things that may have been a discouragement to him is when he finally arrived, after six months on the road, he discovered that he would be kept at arm's length. Only allowed into the outer courtyard of the temple. Getting robbed by the, by the money changers. Treated like scum. Can I ever fully be included into the family of God? What we find in Christ is an ends-of-the-world kind of gospel. Go-to-the-nations kind of gospel. In Christ, the family of God has been reconstituted as a global, international family, not divided by ethnicity, by where you're from, how much money you have, what your background is, but all can come and be part of this family. By the way, I should note that this man is an Ethiopian. I I, I would love, you know, for somebody today that says Christianity is the white man's religion, I would love to see the Ethiopian eunuch have a conversation with that person. (laughs) Say say it again. (laughs) Come again. I'm not not white. Philip wasn't white. Matter of fact, I don't even know any white people. (laughs) Who are white people? We don't even see them until like a couple centuries later. No, Christianity was formed in the rich soil of Africa. Some of our greatest theologians came out of Africa. It's likely that the eunuch took the gospel back to Ethiopia. And the first church in Ethiopia was formed by his preaching. Ethnicity does not keep you from coming to Christ. Don't let anybody ever sell you some kind of non-historic, idea that Christianity is not for you because of a certain ethnicity. Your ethnicity does not keep you from coming to Christ. Amen? Amen. It's for all of us. It's for you. Secondly, the second objection the, the eunuch may have had is simply the fact that he was a eunuch. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, so the, is, is the law of Israel it says that no one with crushed genitals or who has severed off his genitals can enter the assembly of God. I don't know if you know what a eunuch is, but that kind of describes him. In the ancient days, the royal eunuchs would sever off some important parts of their body so that they might serve in this capacity and the reason they would do that is, is uh, so that it would be, everybody would be confident that there's no, going to be no threat toward the queen. 
yet another reason he may have been kept at arm's length in Jerusalem. Can I be baptized? Can I find full inclusion in the family of God? Well, reading Isaiah, the eunuch also would have known Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3, and, uh, 3 through 6, which directly addresses the hope that eunuchs will have in the coming eschaton, in the coming era, the messianic era. There's a hope for eunuchs. And it says, in that day, the eunuch will be better than sons and daughters. And it says, listen to this, they will have an everlasting name which shall never be cut off. He knew that in this coming day that there is hope for full inclusion for someone even like him. What prevents me from being baptized and joining this physical display of the family of God? Answer, absolutely nothing. Christ has done it all. Neither depth nor height, nothing else on all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither your home country, nor your ethnicity, nor your age, nor your family background, nor your religious heritage, nor mental illness, nor PTSD, nor depression, nor a criminal record, nor secret sins, nor massive mistakes, nor addiction issues, nor abuse, nor trauma, nor anything that you've cut off your body can keep you, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I want to say it like the the hymn writer said it. The vilest of sinners who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He has done. Because of Jesus Christ, you can have full inclusion as you are in the body of Christ. And so the Ethiopian eunuch here immediately is baptized by Philip. And in verses 39 through 40, it says that Philip disappears and God takes him down to the coastal towns and he ends up in Caesarea where we're going to find him 20 years later in Acts, continuing to proclaim the gospel. And in verse 39, this is what we're told of the eunuch. He's got a six-month journey ahead of him. And it says in verse 39, last verse, or last phrase, it says, he went on his way rejoicing. He was changed that day. Listen, do you know that news can change your day? Negatively or positively. I recently read a study on how bad news actually affects people who read it. They studied groups of people who had uh, devoured the news from the Boston Marathon on April 15th, the bombing at the Boston Marathon on April 15th, 2013. And what they discovered is that people who had daily devoured news about the marathon were more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression than even those who had family members killed in the bombing but didn't read the news. They were more likely, it discovered, through reading bad news, daily consuming bad news, more likely to have health problems, mental issues that, that, that arise from that, stress, and even of, uh, more likely to have health problems down the road. The study wrote this. They said it was a big aha moment for us. I think people really strongly, deeply underestimate the impact news can have. Another article, similarly, talked about what's called feel-good news. To sort of counter this problem in society, some news publications are putting out feel-good news, news that just makes you feel good. And what studies have shown is that they actually increase happiness in somebody's life. 
Isn't it interesting that God has, resp- has wired the human being to respond emotionally to news? Now what if there is good news that can supersede all of the bad news in this world? What if there's good news that can supersede all the bad news in your life? Yes, you've got news of your past failures, but there's good news that Jesus' righteousness can be yours. You've got news of your sin, but there's good news that there is forgiveness. You've got bad news in your life that you have not accomplished everything that you thought you would accomplish by this age. But good news, Jesus accomplished all that you will ever eternally need to accomplish. You got bad news. You will probably never have your dream house. But there is good news. Jesus says, I'm going to build you a place in heaven that will never fall apart. Oh, talk about falling apart. Bad news. Your body starts to fail you. But good news. You're getting a new body one day. Bad news. You're rejected by people. Good news. Jesus says, I am with you. Period. Bad news. You are going to die. But good news. The sting of death is no more. Oh, death. Where is your sting? Hey, death, where is your victory? Well, the sting of death, the power of death is in the law, but thanks be to God that we have victory through Jesus Christ. The eunuch goes home changed, rejoicing. I don't know if you've ever been going through a bad day and you get some good news and it changes your day. I hope that that's happened to you this morning. I hope that you come, go out of this place with a lighter step than when you came in. I hope that you go out rejoicing in the gospel about Jesus in the same way that this man does in Acts chapter 8. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the gospel is good news. Jesus is good news that really does supersede all of the bad news in our life. And I pray, God, that we would have joy in the gospel as we go through our challenges, as we go through our days, that we would have joy because we know that there is forgiveness for our sins and hope in Him. I pray, Father, for the person in this room who may not know Christ as their Savior, I pray that even now that they would come to Christ and receive Him as their Lord and as their Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.